Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. We are live. Welcome back to Hashing It Out. I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty. Today I have Rick Dudley and Julian. I'm not going to try and pronounce your last name, so I don't butcher it. Genisto. Genisto. Yeah, not too bad. So close. <laughs> uh, and today we want to talk about a interesting concept um, around ownership of digital goods and what that means in the broader context of Web3. This was a bit... Uh, we'll get into kind of the backdrop here, but uh, why don't y'all start by introducing yourselves, what you do, where you're from, and uh, we've both been on the show previously, but for those who haven't seen those, quick introduction. Uh, Rick, why don't you go ahead and start? Yeah, my name is Rick Dudley. Um, I work at a company called Vulcanize. I founded, uh, we do mechanism design and software development management uh, for blockchain projects. And my name is Julien Jeunestou. I'm a Frenchman who lives in New York City, uh, and I'm the founder of a company uh, that builds a protocol called Unlock, who's trying to build a, a protocol for memberships, an easy way for all creators, communities, brands to uh, set a membership contract and sell access to their members in the form of NFTs. All right. And y'all listen to me so you know who I am. Uh, let's start by, I'm going to bring on the screen here, the actual tweet that got this conversation rolling. Pedro from, from Wallet Connect had said, NFTs are about provenance, not ownership. Uh, digital provenance and valuable, in which I responded, uh, provenance of what? And I think that's a very important concept here, right? So like ownership is the thing you're taking provenance of, and that's why it's important, right? So it's, it's a combination of the two, and they both play valuable role, uh, in which Julian responded, ownership as in control, not property. It's probably a more useful concept here. And we continue. Pedro says he likes this distinction of control versus ownership, which actually isn't something that I don't think I've explicitly thought in my head, but that idea has rolled around quite a bit. Uh, Rick, this is where you start to chime in. And so there's going to be a lot of legal confusion around this too, since the idea of anyone controlling a thing, but no one owning it doesn't quite fit well into most modern legal systems. Absolutely. And then I'm like, hey, let's do a podcast. This is an interesting topic. And here we are. So unfortunately, Pedro could, ma could make it. Um, he is, could make it. That's about all there is to it. So he gets to watch and comment later on Twitter and YouTube if he so chooses to. Yeah. So I guess the meme of this situation is NFTs are stupid. I right clicked and saved it. So what's the point? And I think a lot of us who understand the backend technology of why this stuff works or why it's important is tied up in ownership or the ability to manipulate that thing. NFTs are just basically a key value store data structure on a blockchain pointing to things. More often than not, they're pointing to some image that's stored somewhere, but they have attributes, attributes, sorry, I say that wrong every time. And you can track, you can guarantee who owns that set of, set of attributes, and you can track how it's moved and what value it's moved for for its entire history. 
depending on what blockchain you're looking at for that matter. Uh, how do you differentiate this thing on a broader scale? I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward, actually. Um, I think I think the there's two problems. Well, I think there's kind of like maybe three high-level problems. One, most people don't understand what intellectual property is in the first place. So they're kind of just making stuff up anyway. And, and like the auxiliary of that is um, intellectual property is very abstract, right? Even when you do understand it, it's, it's, it's pretty not the analogies about how IP relates to like physically owning something break down pretty quickly. I mean, even property law, if you think about like owning land, even that is not like a very, people have mentioned that on Twitter. It's not like a very clear People oftentimes are confused about how that works legally. So I, I think, um, and I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a practicing lawyer, I haven't passed the bar or anything, but I think a lot of those statements are just made out of, out of ignorance. And then when you get to what actually an NFT is, as you were saying at the start, like, again, people have no idea what an NFT actually is. So again, they're not saying anything that makes any sense on that side either. So it, it you know, uh, NFTs to grant, membership rights are obviously not something you can right click on right not, not to steal your thunder right but like people are like oh nfts do this nfts do that nft is a super generic thing um it is not just the jpeg uh that you can right click um and even if you do right the no one is claiming that the um nf the, that the record in the blockchain has any relationship to your copyrights Right. That that is the most frustrating thing about this whole thing is I don't I I mean, you could do that. You could make an NFT that represented a copyright. But to my knowledge, no one has done that. And there's, again, legal issues with doing that, which is part of why no one has done that. So um, I, th I think on that front, actually, uh, I mean, I definitely agree with you. Like these are completely orthogonal concepts. Like the, the law exists in one dimension and the blockchain exists in a fully different dimension. And there is no. In theory, at least, there is nothing that links the two. I've, I've seen some projects. So uh, if, I'm, if I'm correct, I think Board Apes actually released the IP around the design as uh, Creative Commons Zero, which somehow fits in the IP legal framework things. But it's kind of, uh, you know, it, it's also kind of irrelevant. It's like almost as if Switzerland decided like a law is something that would apply to the rest of the world. It's like, hey, you know, I, I live in the US. I don't care what Switzerland does in that way. And it's kind of the same here. It's just like a way, at least in the legal land, in the meat space, the people that have created the uh, Bored Apes uh, illustration, which now are known, I guess, after last week's uh, uh, article, uh, have said that they will not go after anyone that uses that IP in the meat space as well. But that's completely, as you said, completely, not just orthogonal, but like in a different dimension. It's like it's completely irrelevant to the NFT discussion itself in, in some way. Yeah, I'm curious. Like, it's I don't know. In my opinion, it's it's just because people don't understand what's happening. Like, the, when you when you look at the broader understanding and media push around NFTs in particular, but this you know this this extrapolates to any token on a blockchain, whether it be yep. fungible or not. Um, it's it's profit driven around art. And images. Yeah, and it's... Uh, the, the, we're only now getting to the point where access is what you're buying. Yes. Um, being a part of a group 
And that particular group getting access to additional features and things and what have you based on the ownership of the required token of being in that group. For, an, for NFT collection, that's quite obvious. I need this one, at least one of a given NFT in a collection to, to get access to premium features, if you will. And then once you start to understand that model, you understand, start to understand the, I guess, the value add of what an NFT is and why someone would use it in whatever the hell they're trying to do. But we're not there yet because people don't understand it because the majority of the hype is people making money off minting and selling these things or move, trading them or whatever. And honestly, I mean, I, I'm, what Rick said initially, I think is, is part of it. Like this is an extremely generic thing. Like the, the, you know, it's an accident of history. I think that we started with pictures of animals that are worth billions of dollars. It feels to me like that's, of all of the things, this is just one of the many things that could have happened with this NFT primitive. And maybe that's a reflection of society as it is right now, that's uh, more than it is a reflection of the, what the technology itself enables. Uh, one thing that you, that for me, when you say people don't realize, I think that's exactly right. People don't realize because we are, and that's, it goes beyond NFT. Like we're on the verge of creating a new social construct and so on. Like you think about ownership, Ownership doesn't like owning land. What does that even mean? Like that's that's not physical. Like there is no such thing as land. <laughs> I mean, yes, there is like hills and stuff, but like there is no such thing as like I own this land. Basically, if you come after me and you're stronger than me and you kick my butt, you own the land. Like there is no there is nothing uh, inherent to the to owning something outside of the fact that somebody more more powerful will enforce that ownership for me if I cannot enforce it myself. So ownership is actually deeply rooted in in violence in that way. And I think what's happening with blockchain is like, it's not about violence anymore, but it's actually knowledge. And at the core of it, it's knowledge of a private key, which is no matter how strong you are, no matter how you can, you can put a, you know, a nuclear uh, weapon up my ass, you will not be able to rewrite that, that ledger on the blockchain that says I own an NFT or I own a Bitcoin or I know any one of these things. So we're moving from a, from a place where ownership, but also almost kind of uh, law as being something that is made of violence to something that is made of knowledge of a secret, which is that private key at the core, at the core of it. That's like we just mentioned is provability and enforceability. Exactly. Right? In, in a way that everybody can control of this thing. So like, it's, yeah. it's right here. And you can't take it away from me uh, in any way if I don't tell you. And, and, and we've seen over, I mean, over history, at many places, many times where people thought they owned something, and then some stronger group, some other government, some you know people say, you know what, no, you don't, and there is no way around violence. Like basically, violence would be able to take over. And maybe it's kind of what's called legit or legitimate violence, I guess, of, of the state. But if you think about what's happening in the again, going back twelve years ago uh, to Bitcoin, or maybe even further than that, the idea of cryptographically owning something means that no violence in the world can ever take it from you. And that's what's happening here, which is kind of weird, but I think that's the, the new paradigm that we're moving to. Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. I, I, I think, I, I mean, you know, there is, there is uh, the rubber hose method of crypto analysis, right? I mean, people can torture you to get your keys, but, sand, but I, think, I, think, I think without getting too dark about the whole thing, it's, it's, it's more about having an opt-in society as opposed to a coercive society, right? We have this record and we all opt into believing in this record 
And that's what creates our community as opposed to the threat of literal physical violence creating the community. And that is, a, it's a sort of a realization or a formalization of what we had on the internet um, where internet communities were emergent, but there wasn't really any way to, the identification with that community was a private thing. Like I'm a member of such and such mailing list and you know, no, you're not, right? There was no way to really, to really verify that you, that you were. Um, and I think this is just, especially from a generational perspective, I think NFTs are a way that people of these younger generations than myself are able to identify as members of these, uh, 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 try and mute that. Uh, don't know what happened to Rick, but yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, looks like he lost internet. This is absolutely spot on, and I, I agree with this. Like, it's basically the idea of an opt-in society is something that I, I, I deeply, deeply value. Like, of course, if I own an NFT that represents some physical asset, you can still come and steal it from me. But anyone who has opt-in in the same community as me in the same ledger will see that I still technically own it. It was just taken from me by some other people in the ecosystem. And so, uh, definitely love that idea of of uh, opt-in society, opt-in. There's yeah, there's two things that I wanted to pinpoint from what Rick just said, and that is the this once again separation of ownership versus control. The private keys are the things that you own, right? Those are the things you have to maintain, um, and the ownership of those underlying private keys uh, can be dispersed further, right? And and the management of those things, and and those, so you have custodianship of that ownership in one way or another. So you have to maintain that stuff. And then because we've used names like wallet, the intuition that you you own keys that control things on a ledger has kind of been lost in a lot of ways. Uh, and so people think that the coins are in their wallet or whatever. And, and it, we've, we've, we've severed the ability for people to intuit that what's going on is we're just exchanging the ability to control digital assets on some verifiable ledger. And, and that is something that I think is, is a very important distinction to make when people start building around these things and trying to understand why they're useful. And the other side of that is people don't quite understand it, this differentiation and why NFTs are something worth looking into or understanding and why they're going to be around is partly a, a, like the, the reason is what Rick was just talking about. It's a really great way for us to understand uh, being a member of something and being able to prove it and verify it without having to rely on humans. We're opting into the system because it's obfuscating the need to rely on a human to do that administration. And like the kind of the third part that makes it more difficult is most of the, once again, most of the focus is on value primarily. So you look at your wallet and the dashboard or the UI is centered around how much is this stuff worth? Not what can I do with it? And it? as we move into what I, I think is this understanding of, community membership and, and social interaction that that 
display of what assets do I have needs to change from how much is it worth to what can I do with it and what is that yes. worth, right? A hundred percent of this. And and that's, I mean, that immediately the thing that comes to mind is the fact that the most popular NFT contract of all is the OpenSea contract. It's not verified, is not, I mean, not open source, which means that in practice, you don't really own anything. Yes, you might own the private key of a thing, but you actually, this, your you have no control over what's in that smart contract for, I mean, God knows, Ooh, but uh, why? But there might be somewhere an admin function that allows somebody else to just come and capture all of the thing that you own, and so or change the attributes, or, or the, change whatever, the attributes. whatever the things exactly. that you think you you control is exactly. And so having wallets specifically that would rather than show you the value, show you the kind of control that you have is definitely something that would be extremely meaningful because you don't really own anything if you have no. Uh, what's the right way? Visibility, I guess, of what this thing that you own allows you to do or doesn't allow you to do in that in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I do recommend. Um, you know, if you're if you're playing around and you're trying to figure things out, I, I do say people, okay, yeah, use OpenSea. It's cheaper, but don't try to like run your life on it because you don't actually control those NFTs that are minted there, and it is difficult to explain that to people, especially when they're getting started. And I didn't realize, I, I had forgotten that the contract wasn't verified, but it is kind of almost like a nightmare scenario for a lot of us that such so much value is locked up in a pretty opaque, you know, they, they've done everything they can to make that system as opaque as possible while still interacting with the with the protocols. And I don't think they did that maliciously, but it is frustrating that, um, they now have this huge market cap and have done nothing to uh, address those issues. There are in some way product of success hypocrite. and convenience. Yeah. When it's I say that, I mean, yeah, it's they're convenient because based on the way NFT contracts work across the board, they're very difficult to integrate into wallets. Yeah. So, if I want to, if I want someone to use wallet software that I create, then I'd like them to see what NFTs they own based on the keys that they have. Doing that is difficult on my end, and keeping up with it is very difficult on my end. OpenSea was the first to expose an API that that wallet providers could use that made that very, very, very easy. So it got large. It was also one of the largest platforms for trading these things. I think that's a different problem, though. I mean, I, I, I agree that there's a challenge around the fact that they became the API layer de facto, which means that, again, they become middlemen and they could, you know, obfuscate things and, and not make it obvious what you actually own or, or can transfer anything. But it's a different problem from the them having a smart contract that people mint from and have no idea what's in there. Yeah. Like, I do think that in practice, there could be, and I think there's actually already at this point, more APIs for... Uh, listing some of these, uh, I mean, own now, NFTs, yeah. um, and and that that's good, and I think we'll we'll need that because at least Ethereum that I know a little bit more than the others uh, doesn't have good ways to actually do that and shouldn't have because it would actually be pretty wasteful uh, in the core data store to actually have kind of the indices to allow someone to list all of the NFTs that somebody owned. So I I'm again the API layer. I can see how this is not ideal from a from a, a systems design perspective. But I don't think it makes us hypocrites. Like the 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 fact that the most popular NFT contract of all is not verified means that actually, yeah, you don't really own anything. You think you own something, but it's not more than a database in a record. Uh, sorry, a record in a database. Um, in practice, though, 
I, that's the thing that worries me is, is not so much the, yeah, it's the lack of control. It's like, I don't know what's going on and I have no way of actually knowing what's going on and how it's going to evolve in the future. Uh, yeah. Do you think that? that's because of the kind of lack of intuition that I, that I discussed earlier? Is that why people, is that why it got there is because people don't necessarily even know to ask those questions. They just assume oh. that it works because it's on a blockchain kind of like, you know, earlier misconceptions around, oh, it's encrypted because it's on a blockchain or it's anonymous because it's on a blockchain and all those yeah. things are obviously not true now, but it took a while to get there. I think people still say that kind of stuff to me, actually. I mean, it, and, and I think that, yeah, it's this problem with analogy, right? You're trying to get people, like it's a generational thing too, as well. Like there's nothing you're going to say to a 70 year old who doesn't decide to learn computer science or cryptography or, you know, prime factorization or whatever they need to. Like if you're not willing to get into that level of it, there's no short version explanation I'm going to give you that's going to explain the system to you. And there's, um, it's a, just an interesting cultural shift, right? Like when, obviously when this stuff started, it was very much, you know, cypherpunks, right? And they, they had this deep knowledge, right? And so they, they kind of didn't even have a use for the analogies, right? And, and now we're at a place where NFTs are the first time. So, you know, DeFi summer and NFTs hitting so close together is like pretty, I think, socially significant, like culturally significant. But with, but with DeFi summer, it was still, okay, we've opened up to like finance, right? It's like, it's like the finance debutante ball, basically. But, but the NFT movement is really like anyone can be like, oh, I see gifts all the time. I want to buy them, but I can't because it doesn't make any sense. And now someone's like, oh, no, here you can buy a JPEG now. And people are like, awesome. And I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, especially from like, again, like a cultural generational perspective. Like if a bunch of people get together and they say, we're buying JPEGs and like some grumpy old man, someone says, no, you can't do that. It doesn't make any sense. Well, like they're often doing it, right? So I think that when you're doing that sort of social shift, you're going to have this problem with it. This problem with analogy is going to get worse, right? Because people are going to grow up and experience the ecosystem purely within the analogy. They like, like it's, it's great, but you know, like, you know, there was at one point in like uh, probably like 2018, I would go to events and people would like know who I was. And now I go to NFT events. Of course, no one knows who I am and it's, it's wonderful, right? I love it. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> upset about it at all, but that's, you know, those people, there's other people who people should really know in the NFT space who they really don't know because they have no idea what a blockchain is, how it works, what it's doing. They have a limited understanding of what their wallet does. They do not understand private, you know, their past, their secret phrases. They don't understand all this stuff. They just know that there's a whole bunch of people that they talk to on Twitter or Reddit or wherever, and they, and they can now talk about owning JPEGs. And that's, and that's it. And that, and that serves the social purpose. I, I think I want to go back to what uh, Rick said earlier, which I think is, is definitely a good point, is the, the lack of words in some way, the lack of mental models. We, we don't really have a way to, we need to use analogies to describe these things because people don't, as, as Rick said, they can't really learn prime factors to actually make sense of that. And that wouldn't be wasteful to actually have everyone go there. And so we try to, that's this skeuomorphism thing, right? We try to 
describe something new with something old, even though that doesn't fit perfectly well. And that creates a tension. And the ownership concept for me is, is definitely one of the critical aspects here is like you don't own an NFT in the same way that you own a house. In some way, I would argue that you own a, uh, an NFT in a more fundamental way than what you own a house. But it's again, it's not something that people fully embrace and realize that we actually don't have the words to describe these things in a way that would uh, really kind of mimic what I would call reality or what I perceive as reality. And it's kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm French, you might have understood this already from, from my accent, but it's kind of fascinating to see that that is something that I struggle with on a daily basis where I know the English word, I know the French words, but they don't mean the same thing for me, even though they're synonym. I mean, they're, you can translate one and the other. And it feels to me like there's almost, and I think it's all of us like this, there's almost concept and ideas that English words, French words, German words, I don't know, Russian words, might not actually be a good description of because that mental model, that image of what it is, is actually evolving in ways that are linked to the core capabilities of the technology and that was basically, I don't want to say invented, but discovered in a way that we've never put a name. Like, I mean, I, when, you know, the Native Americans are called Indians, because that's basically when, you know, Christopher Columbus and his crew arrived here, they thought they were in India. And I think it's, it's exactly what's happening here with ownership. We're going to call this thing ownership, even though it has, I don't say nothing to do, but it's very different from the actual physical ownership of physical things. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've definitely often railed against the words we use because they don't give the proper intuition to the, how it works. And unfortunately, uh, if you don't come up with a better solution for people and it doesn't get attached, then no one cares about complaining. Exactly. Um, we need them we, and then they're, in, they're limited, which is kind of the biggest frustration of all. Yeah, but I think that comes from that shift that Rick was talking about and, and, and you're kind of discussing with like how things are going comes from people people's behaviors right people are doing things even still using the old bad analogies and eventually someone comes along and puts a new name to the behavior because they realize it no longer fits and people are willing to listen what do we need to be doing because hmm. we all build yeah and try and get people to understand this stuff more fundamentally to how it works what do we what do we do to help push that along in my so opinion, it's get people to use these things so that they make that association of this is what my token does and that's worth something. Yeah, absolutely. Usage is a big part of it. And uh, what I try to tell people with NFTs is, you know, because people, again, I'm by no means an NFT expert, but people know that I work in the blockchain. And so they ask me and I say, well, you know, focus on the community. So whoever it is, if it's if they're trying to issue NFTs, which is usually the people that talk to me, I say, well, don't worry about issuing an NFT. Worry about having a functional and deep community, and then and then in that domain, and then the NFT issuance, you know, an expert will show up, and you know, you have to tr use your street smarts or whatever to vet that person, but you'll get through that process. And sort of the same thing as a purchaser, you know, look at the community backing that project. You know, don't just look at the price that could be easily manipulated on OpenSea or what have you. Engage in the community, and and I think to your to your point, uh, Corey, around around usage and using the tokens, we don't have those killer apps right now that I think really connect the community um, to the NFT, which I assume is in, in part what Julian is working on, actually, and and me for that matter. It's just we haven't. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Announce yeah. that hard. 
I'd say yeah. even more petty than, than we do, but yes, 100%. Um, and I want to go back also to what uh, Rick started with uh, around the idea of mental models, like using it for me, that you can't have somebody tell you what it is because the words that they're going to use are not going to help you build that right mental model because it's so it's so different <laughs> in some way. The, the words are so limited. And so the only way to do that is actually to use it. And so I, I know this sometimes is like, it sounds very... Uh, what do you mean use it like download a what yeah download a wallet uh then maybe and i'm not saying this to you know purchase crypto so you become rich like just go on some one of these testnet if you want like there's rinkaby and then find a few nft project there and then try to mint one try to purchase one and what rick said once you start to have an understanding of how it works from a, a ui perspective now join a community and try to see what that collective ownership because like in the end it's like i own that nft you own another nft we all own different NFTs from the same collection means that we start to share something that we start to have interaction that are unique and that are defining our culture in that subgroup or in that small group. And that's the thing that's interesting to me, maybe more than the, oh, uh, this I use this version of Solidity or my NFTs on Solana versus Ethereum. It's like, ah, you know, yes, this important topics for some aspect, but you're not going to understand what i mean the concept behind owning an nft is until you actually own one um, I, I feel and, like you're yeah. you're you're doing yourself a disservice here julian by not talking about what you do because that's the main point of unlock protocol is nfts as use and, it, and it's and it's nfts as access yes and, and, and in a model that people already understand Yes, absolutely. So I'll, I'll, I'll go there and do my, my little quick pitch. But like, I, I do believe that the web and the internet altogether have been built around the idea of monetization through attention, basically. It's like, how can I, when I create content, steal five more minutes worth of your time because I'm going to sell that to an advertiser. And I think that's ill-informed that it creates kind of bad incentives around content creation, a bunch of things. What I've seen emerge, and I'm not talking about blockchain here, what I've seen emerge over the last 15, 20 years, I'm, I've been in the open web for a little while, is the idea of membership, is the idea that people are going to pay to be part of specific communities. And if you think about this, actually is very much true in all of the physical world. Like, I mean, I mean, in Brooklyn, there's a Park Slope uh, co-op where people go, we do their shopping and stuff. It's highly, highly community-driven. It's not about, uh, you know, uh, how much I pay. It's like, really, I'm part of this small group. And so I do think that the sense of community is something that is extremely strong. And I think that NFTs is actually a very good way of uh, making the... <laughs> community, I don't say physically real, but in some way tangible uh, as an object. It's like, hey, okay, I know that I'm a member of this thing because I've got this in my wallet. I know I have this little badge, this member's card, and that's my, I, mean, I don't say pride, but that's my my signal that I actually own this. And that's what Unlock is. It's basically a protocol for memberships in the form of NFTs. Um, there's a couple more things, but really that's what it is at, at the core. Do you think that, like, I don't know, I... I I got into all of this tech originally because I was interested in the computational problem that Bitcoin solved, like, you know, proof of work and double spins and things like that. Uh, I was then took the standard route of then learning about how money works and how Bitcoin kind of obfuscated the, the, the need for the third party verification. And then it finally dawned on me after a period of time that like at the end of the day, it's all about communities. Like this is a group of people with that have an asset to point to for their shared ideals. And that asset generally has a value associated with the 
the, the, the shared value of all of those people's ideals. You're able to quantify a set of ideals within a token and its distribution based on, and, and that's kind of like a, a really fundamental way of looking at how to price in what something's worth is uh, what people are willing to pay to, to get it and then use it for or hold it or whatever the ideal set of that token is. Uh, I, I'm curious to see if now that we've, I don't know, the concept of NFT or something that isn't just a currency, a fungible token is now becoming more prevalent and experimentation around that stuff happens. If people, more people jump onto that same association, that it's the community that has the value and that value is whatever, however the token quantifies their ideals, their their shared set of ideals. Like we all bought this thing because we care about this, this, and this. And it gives us access to these other things, which are which are similar. And and in the past, there was no way to quantify that or sell it, or you know, I mean, like you couldn't exchange it, you couldn't prove ownership, you couldn't encapsulate it. And a lot of the ways what we're doing is we're encapsulating that, you know, I, I guess the only way to put it in my head right now is a shared set of ideals and. I'm curious to see if people move towards that and then sort of say, oh, this stuff is worthwhile or they're like that you're full of shit and that's a dumb idea. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Because community is clearly the, like, the core of this, right? That's like, that's the only reason why any of this stuff has value is because there's a group of people willing to buy it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, there's one thing that keeps uh, resenting my head is like, when you say quantifiable, I actually don't think all of the value is quantifiable. Like, uh, more quantifiable, better than but, previously. But I think some of it is binary, right? Like think of it as it's like you either have it or you don't have it. Like uh, we obviously have a big debate over the weekend over uh, Catholicism in some way. There is no like, oh, I'm, I'm 100 Catholicism or Catholic and then you're 20, like you are in or not in some way. And so I feel like there is a lot of aspect like this where even though it is quantifiable in a binary way, like either in or out, it's really hard. I mean, there's no such thing as like more of one than somebody else. And that's, that's the value of NFTs. Is like for all of, all of the communities where I am not more a member or more uh, a, a, a person in the ecosystem than somebody else, I am like somebody else, a member or not a member of that ecosystem. Well, that that's, that's because we don't have tools for administration and setting those boundaries. But right now, there, it's, it's you have it or you don't. There's nothing built on top of it that people use in these things to, to differentiate that. But even there, I, I mean, again, like there's a lot of things that I don't think you can easily quantify the difference between two people. Like, again, like religion is one of these, like, I, I mm-hmm. guess I am, uh, I believe in this or I don't. Uh, and it feels like being, uh, there's a lot of communities where it's like, you're either a member of that thing or you're not. There is no such thing as being a plus, you know, a more of a member than somebody else of a specific committee. So I agree with you, like it's it's all about the committees, but in, in some way there is a lot of committees that are non-fungible in that sense. And that's why I do think that NFTs make sense in that concept. It's like, there is no, there is no, it's hard to describe. Well, I think like, part of it, part yeah. of your difficulty here is the fact that we use the term NFT for all of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that does make this conversation practically impossible. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there are definitely, I think that the future of all of this technology, I mean, 
how many people know what TCP IP is or, you know, the Indian encoding of a JPEG, which I don't happen to know, right? I mean, we, um, I think that absolutely the future products, blockchain will be successful when people stop talking about blockchain. You know, that's when it will really be successful. And you're absolutely right. It'll be through community. So NFTs will be successful. Blockchain will be successful when people stop talking about that. And they just say, wait, you mean grandpa, you back when you used Facebook, they owned your data. That's crazy. They were stealing all of your value. And you're like, yes, yes, grandchild. They, they were, <laughs> um, it was horrible and we don't live in that world anymore. Um, and you're I don't, welcome. yeah, 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 you're welcome. Exactly. You're welcome. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's, uh, people will just sort of be confused. I mean, and that's also like one version of it, right? There's also this, this, um, you know, totalitarian or authoritarian, uh, version where we just have, you know, you know, the three, you know, you this Orwellian, it really is Orwellian. You have the EU, the U S and China, and they control everything. And maybe they even use hash linked data. Uh, to, to execute that control, but this the, these questions that we have now about independence, freedom, ownership, liberty are just all swept aside. I mean, I hope that doesn't happen. I, I mean, I'm working extremely hard to give people their data. So, so the hope is that people appreciate that and actually uh, use it. And it's, I mean, uh, what Rick said about like stealing the data, it, it's for me, it's like it almost echoes to uh, feudalism in the Middle Ages in Europe. It's like, it's not that they own the data. It's like they control the data. They, they, they know what they're going to capture from you. They know what they're going to sell to somebody else for you. They know what they're going to leverage uh, as information for you. So basically, it's like maybe, I mean, I actually don't think my data oftentimes is worth that much to me. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to, uh, like, the fact that I enjoy this kind of pizza or that I love this kind of music is probably not worth a lot of money to me. But not having control over it is extremely scary. It means that they can use this against me in that way. They can use it to influence me or to turn my attention to something that is not that worth uh, my time in that way. And to me, that's the scary part. It's like owning in the, in the, in the property sense, like, I, you know, I could put a dollar price on that data, sure, but I don't think it actually is. Is going back to the quantifiable thing. It, it's it's not maybe something that I can easily put a dollar price and sell because it might actually be more important. The control of it is actually something that is fundamental. In some ways, like, and again, this is extremely loaded in specific in the U.S., but like the idea of slavery being a thing of a price, like, oh, I can buy back my freedom for a certain amount, is something that would be completely crazy. It's just like you're sticking into the ecosystem. It's like, no, no, no. There is no price for your freedom. Like there's no there shouldn't be a dollar amount in front of this. It's not something that you can quantify in that way. It's it's like you need to get out of this model and say, no, no, no. It's not like Facebook owns the value of my data. It's like I want to have control of my data in the same way that I again very loaded analogies and stuff. But like a slave might want to actually have control over their destiny rather than say, hey, there's a price at which I can pay and now it's mine. Which is like no, that's not the right mental model in my mind, at least. I think it's completely appropriate to associate many American economic models with slavery. I think, I think my experience of traveling, I didn't start really leaving the country until I was in my 30s. And um, I think a lot of American models are very, even if it's not 
they're much they're much more oriented on hidden inequity in relationships than any place else I've ever been. Right. So like when I've had dinner with, you know, the governor of some place in France and I don't know anything about France, he's like, I'm the governor of some place in France. Like he tells you right away. When you're in America, they, you know, you would be weeks before you discover that this person actually, you know, owns the entire, every conversation you've had with them was in a building they owned, right? Like, like there's definitely, and, it, and it, it's directly related to cypherpunks, right? Like it's directly related to how Bitcoin and these technologies emerged is because the American business model, I feel more so than in other places, although of course other places are like this as well, to some extent, but very much in America, we want people to feel as though they have a freedom that they, that they don't have. And, and it's that, and as you know, as you mature, as you get older, you become sensitive to this and people who are really sensitive to it you know, become some kind of punk, right? Whether they're an actual anarchist or gutter punk or whatever, they they leave that society behind because there's no there's no path, right? There's no way to go from like uh, you know, I live in New York City as well, and um, I see these young professionals in my building, and I like I know how much my rent is, and I know what I had to do to be able to pay for that rent independently, and I know what they have to do. You know, when you go work at an enterprise and you go work at a corporation, like you are losing some agency in exchange for, you know, convenience. Yeah. yeah a nice plaster on the wall, like yeah. a, a, like a finer plaster. And it's like, do I really want to give up so much for finer plaster on my wall? Like probably not. Yeah. But it's also a part of that. Uh, I mean, you, you've both done a wonderful job of, circling back to this differentiation between ownership and control and pointing out most of the power and previous economic models come from this asymmetry of control. And it's not necessarily like we want to own our data. We want to control it and how it's being used. And the, and that asymmetry is, is the lack of transparency of like where it lives, how it works, who has control over it and agency over it. And what a lot of these systems that we're creating are is giving not forcing people to take control over it, but giving them the option to if they want it. And that helps people get from forcing themselves to give up some agency in exchange for finer plaster. Because a lot of people don't even realize that there's options available to them uh, because of that kind of backdrop of asymmetry of control. Absolutely. And the, the asymmetry, I think, is in many ways the violence. It's the one thing that you don't realize. It's like that's the alienation <laughs> that the other party has over you. It's like basically they own you because they have that power. What are you going to do? You know what I mean? It's like, well, is that, is that that's the pills, right? Like, that's the, oh, that's you don't the, like it? What are you going to do? Like, that's the pills. That's the, that's the matrix pills. Like, uh, the knowledge itself is the thing that actually is the freedom in some way with its own curse. Like, it's, uh, you know, sometimes uh, there's a movie that I love. It's like the, uh, it's a French guy who made it. The, uh, uh, ah, the, uh, uns- uh, anyway, that's the story of a, 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 a girl that actually goes to the hospital and forgets every day her story. And the uh, you've seen that movie. Uh, it actually happens in Long Island. Uh, it's like basically 
the she can forget every every time there is something painful in her life she can forget about it and then live the next day in a complete bliss, blissful ignorance there's and, an adam sandler movie about that i think you know maybe that's the anyway but it was done by a french <laughs> a french uh, a french uh you mean eternal sunshine of the spot yes mind? that one that one yes that's a way better movie than adam sandler's movie <laughs> okay that's another one okay but that that to me is like that's the curse of knowledge like sometimes you know things and it's it, it makes you realize that you know the 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 life of a, a golden yuppie in I don't know where which neighbor you're in like who doesn't think about all of the control that they could have if they fought for it uh, could actually be so much better and knowing that it's so much work to actually get to that freedom is definitely something that is uh, again I don't say curse necessarily but like a, a hard question and that's the pills in in Matrix and if you go study history in the Middle Ages obviously. Feudalism was not something that was, I mean, a lot of the people that were, uh, what do you call this, uh, peasantry, I guess, uh, were happily peasantry. I don't want to say happily because it's kind of a thing, but like, they didn't want to be uh, free and have to go find a job by themselves. Like, knowing that there was this benevolent uh, lord that would give them food and, and take care of them was something that sometimes is comfortable also, which is kind of a challenge as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think as from a product perspective, that's absolutely our biggest challenge, right? You, you know, how do we make products that compete with Facebook or Twitter when we literally have to like, how do we hide all those options from you? Like we have to give you a whole, whole bunch of options. That's kind of, that's kind of why we're doing all this to give you a bunch of options, mm -hmm. but people don't want to see all those options. It, it's like, so you, you have to hide the options. And this is kind of what the quandary that OpenSea was in, right? Where it's like, well, yeah, we could give you all these options, but then you couldn't use the platform. So what, how do we give you the options because that's important to us and we think that it will one day be very important to you, hopefully, um, and, and how do we actually um, make that work? I, I think that's, to me, that's kind of the biggest risk of the sort of Web3, I guess is what we're calling it now, the Web3 experiment is like, if we do, if, if we have to sort of skate this line where, we want to give people the right to exit. We want to give people optionality, but we also need the thing to look similar enough to what they know so that they actually use it. And what they, what they know is this very constrained web two model where they have basically no control. I, another thing I used to say to people way back when, I actually know a guy here who runs his own mail server from his house to show you how old I am and how old this gentleman is. And, you know, if you were to try today to run a mail server out of your house, it's exceptionally difficult to do. It's not easy. He's the reason he can do that is because he's been running mail servers for 30 years. Especially so, if you want someone to actually get that mail and not send up in a spam filter. Exactly. Exactly. How does he, you know, he could just learn DMARC or whatever in a couple of days and, and adapt and move on. Maybe he worked on the standard. Um, but a, but a normal person um, can't run a, a file server in their house or a mail server in their house. They, so they certainly can't run an Ethereum full node in their house. So it's, you know, this, um, this I think is, a, is the big challenge. And I think that when we talk about NFTs as well, when it's like, well, how do I know that I own it? How do I actually prove that it's really mine? Um, that becomes a serious issue. That hopefully will become a serious issue uh, in the near term. Yeah, we... I would argue that all of us who are building things and to, to quote your Twitter profile, sell lockpicks and not shackles yeah. 
giving people options to go somewhere in the event that they want to opt out in the system they're already in. We're very, we're very ahead of our time. And unfortunately, the behavior, the, the appropriate behavior of this technology is anathema to Web2. It is a very different mental model of taking responsibility and not putting it out to others and relying on, I forgot my password button. But like, and when we try and design systems that are approachable to people who grew up in a web two world where they always had that convenience by offloading it to someone else, it's going to be very difficult to make things that don't, that can't look the same way, or you're, you, 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 you forced yourself to make compromises the moment you try to, and it's going to be a while, but I think we've all made the bet that eventually people are going to get fed up enough to learn or make that behavior change. And that stuff has to exist when that, when that happens. I think it'll absolutely happen generationally, right? I don't know that individuals, I don't know that your average 35 year old today is they either accepted it or not already, but I mm -hmm. think that the younger generations will absolutely say, I mean, we already see it with, even in crypto Twitter, we've seen it with the, with the, with the anime icons and the frogs, right? There's like these, I just see them as two different gangs, right? Like my, my brain, <clears throat> there's this, uh, there's this uh, William Gibson novel called Count Zero, and there's, a, and there's a chapter in it called Khakis vs. Goths, which really resonated with me because I wore khakis to work and then went to a bunch of goth bars. And, <laughs> and, um, and that's, I mean, I feel like there's like these frogs and these anime characters in crypto Twitter who are always duking it out. And I, I actually see very few frogs. I see basically no frogs. And I don't, and I don't know what these, I don't even know what their ideals are. I don't know what their, what their manifesto is. I haven't read the pamphlet. All I know <laughs> is that a lot of people who talk to me anonymously have an anime character. And a lot of people who try to make fun of me anonymously are frog-like characters. Yeah. It's, I mean, I want to go back to, uh, another point about control. Uh, and I think Rick, uh, Rick alluded to this earlier as well as like, giving control to people by giving them optionality is definitely a good direction. But the challenge around this is like, if you fall on the other side, too much control, actually too much, sorry, too much ownership is like, is also creating kind of the paradox of, of choice where it becomes impossible to actually know what is the right option. And you fall into the trap where you have all of the choice in the world, but you're actually not empowered to make decisions because you don't understand what's going on and how this works. And so that goes back to the earlier discussion that we've had around like finding mental models and kind of creating education. And I think that's maybe one of the most, I don't want to say painful, but like one of the most, uh, 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 the hardest work that we have to do in that ecosystem is like training people and telling constantly uh, about what we found and what maybe they should try to find by themselves rather than say, hey, you know what? Yes, of course, this is the better version. And trust me, like that's not, if you'd say, trust me, this is the better version, or now you have to get the choice, you're actually not empowering them to make the decision and, and kind of take full control of their destiny again or what they want to do. And it feels weird to say destiny when it's like talking about open sea, but like it's, you have to know your shit to make informed and valuable decision otherwise it's as if somebody else made this decision for you and that's you know maybe better if that some person is at least sometimes benevolent so it's kind of a, a very fine line that we have to we have to work all the all the time between giving choice option control and then obviously at the same time educating training uh, uh 
and this actually not just happens through technology, but like through art, through uh, you know um, words, and through novels. Like I, I'm reading books is actually a very good way of learning about things and and kind of putting yourself in situation that actually help you make sense of some of the technologies that we are playing with at this point. Definitely feel that. I mean, I'm, I've I've said a few times um, in various places that we as developers who build things for people. Um, when you, when you work in this industry that is like fundamentally is trying to give people options, but is running up against this friction of by providing all the options, you give option paralysis and this no, no adoption. It's now our responsibility as developers to provide all the options as possible and then choose appropriate defaults which dictate the behavior we think is appropriate and then give them the ability to opt out to that. Yes. And that's the way we have influence because we don't have the control or access or administration that um, previous app web two application developers had, whereas like, we don't like this. We can see your behavior. We're going to move it in this direction to what we think is appropriate for you, but not give you an option to change it. And so our influence is setting defaults but never removing the option to change them in the event that someone wants to opt out. And that goes back to the comment you made earlier about the wallets. Like instead of showing the dollar price, the value of something, show me the thing that I can do and what is going to happen when I do these things. Like, uh, I mean, it's yeah. like, okay, you you have this thing in your wallet. Yes, you can transfer some. No, nope, this one is not transferable. Or ah. if you transfer this, you're going to lose that much or it's going to cost you, you this much. Like ton of value here. You brought something up that I, I, is the secondary part to what I just said. And that is like, not only do the options need to be there, but the appropriate information needs to be yes. available at the right context. So the user can make the decision that's right for them and not the decision you think is right for them. Yes. And that's a really hard problem to do. I guess doing that without overloading someone is very hard. Absolutely. That's all I got. <laughs> well, I don't else? Around I'm, like, I'm, I'm pretty good. How much time do we have left? Is this just open ended forever? Open ended. I usually go around an hour, but if you have something else, shoot out. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to jump. Unfortunately, but this is a fantastic discussion. Like honestly, uh, we should do more of these. I don't. I don't I want to invite myself. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I uh, I, I plan on doing a lot more of these. I took my hiatus from many things over the last couple months, and now I'm back. And I want these things to happen more. And I'd appreciate if you help me. Uh, broadcast it and do it some more. So, um, absolutely, we'll have to do it again. We'll wrap this one up, and I appreciate you guys coming on. It was a pleasure. That was a pleasure. Thanks for having us, uh, me specifically, and nice to meet you, Rick. Uh, we yeah, think, same. very briefly crossed in person. You might once. actually live close to each other. Uh, who knows? Uh, I live between the two bridges, as they say. Okay, uh, I live south of the two bridges. I guess I'm in Park Slope. You yes, know, yes. three kids. That's the that's the joke. I live in the parents' neighborhood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> cool. All right. Have a good afternoon. I'll see you all yes. around. Pleasure. See you, on the see you both later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.